Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat and open your Bibles up to Ephesians 4. We're going to be picking up in verse 11 today, and we're going to be really kind of wrapping up this long section that makes up the first half of Ephesians 4, really verses 1 through 16, that talk about the, really God's design for the church, what it is, how it functions. And what we've seen so far is we saw, first of all, the unity of the church, the unity of the church around who God is, what he's done, and what our hope in him is, and the ways that we relate to one another to maintain that unity that Christ has created in the gospel, right? Then from that, we moved from unity to diversity. We saw that Christ, in ascending to heaven, sent his Holy Spirit, and his Spirit gives us diverse gifts of grace, right? Ways that he works in us for the good of his church, right? That are vastly different. We are not all the same, and we need different uh, different strengths and weaknesses in each other to make a complete body. It's a diversity that serves the unity of the church. Now we move on from that diversity, and we, this last section is going to talk about maturity, the maturity of the church. Or to put it in the form of a question, how does Jesus grow his church? He said he would build his church. How does he go about doing that? What does it look like? And I thought of two things that come up often in the broader evangelical American church that get talked about a lot. One is church growth, right? This is a whole area of study now in seminaries. There's books and people with PhDs in this. And this area of study focuses on how do you basically boost the numbers of the church, right? Get more people there, more money, more facilities, more influence, right? All these, these metrics that we can measure. It's kind of the science of what tactics and techniques can you use to kind of produce these, these results, right? And this is very prominent. It's influenced the American church very, very broadly. So that's one thing that I think is kind of related to this. And there's another thing, uh, discipleship, right? Discipleship is a good thing. It's just the idea of, of following Jesus. But in the American church, the idea of discipleship has become a very individual thing, right? It's essentially kind of a, a baptized self-help, right? tactics, techniques, methods for you to grow in your, your personal walk, right? It's a very individualistic kind of idea. And, and so these are kind of, when I think about maturity, I think these are kind of the two things that if you just kind of pulled a random person in the American church, these are the kind of two things people would think. The, the growth of the church in terms of numerical metrics that we can point our finger to, baptisms, memberships, dollars, those kinds of things, or this idea of, okay, all the spiritual disciplines I do or the techniques I do, these things I do to kind of level up my own personal spirituality. And I think those are kind of the two, two directions that this would most likely be seen. So the question is, do those actually capture what Jesus has in mind when he says he will build his church? And I would argue that we don't have to throw everything out with both of those, but they miss the main point. They miss the main way that this functions. And that's what we're going to see in Ephesians 4, how Jesus actually designed to build his church. So we'll go ahead and read this for you guys, and we will dive in and answer that question. Ephesians 4.11 says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain all to the, to we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for gathering us together. I'm so encouraged by being here with my brothers and sisters and um, already what we have heard of your word and the truth of your gospel um, has, um, has nourished my soul. And I thank you for how faithful you've already been. Uh, and I ask for your continued faithfulness to us now. I pray that you would, that you would speak to your church through my uh, weak and broken words, that your spirit would draw straight lines uh, with the crooked stick that, that I am and be faithful to nourish your people through it. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd give us receptive ears that you would, um, and receptive hearts, that we would be willing to be shaped and molded by your word rather than obstinately wanting it to conform to us. And we pray that you would accomplish all that you desire in building your church this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so this comes right on the heels of Paul talking about Jesus ascending to heaven, giving the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit giving the entire church, every individual in the church, different graces, different gifts for the sake of the church. And from there, he points out a few particular ones. Uh, and there's a couple unique things, right? There's this list of five things. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. So a couple of things that are interesting. One is that these are not actually gifts. These are people, right? He doesn't go through and list like skills or the things we commonly call spiritual gifts. He actually lists people or officers in the church. So that's a little interesting, and this is obviously not a comprehensive list, right? We can look all over the place in scripture and see many, many other gifts. But there's a particular reason he's honing in on these ones, right? And it's not to minimize the other gifts. We're going to get to those by the time we get to the end of this passage. It's going to come back around. But these particular um, people, that we could go spend a long time on going into the differences between these offices. But Paul brings it up because of what they all share in common. Every one of these people have a role of ministering the word to the church. That's the common thread. That's why Paul lists these gifts out. That every one of these roles ministers the word of God to his church. And that's what Paul is kind of shifting the focus to as he starts to move towards how does the church actually grow? It grows based on the ministry of the word in the church. That's what he's, that's what he's shifting us to, right? And he says that, so he gives these people to, to teach and proclaim the word of God to his church. He says it's for, a multiple, for several reasons. And depending on which translation you're using, you might see two or three. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I actually think this is three different things, not two. They equip the saints, they do the work of ministry, and they build up the body of Christ. Um, so what do these things mean, right? What does this ministry of the word do through these people that God has given it to? First thing is it, it equips the saints. The, the word here, the idea here is the same word you use for preparing soldiers for battle, right? Like I did this in the Marine Corps. I had guys that I was in charge of and I trained them. I gave them equipment. I inspected them to make sure all their equipment was correct and right and in good order and everything before I sent them out into battle. That's the idea here. 
The ministry of the word is what prepares us for life in this world, which is warfare. We're going to talk about that a lot a little bit later in Ephesians, Ephesians 6. All right, so that's what this ministry of the word does. It equips you for what life in this world is like. Now, the second thing, so that's part of my job, right, as a pastor, as one of these people in this role, my job is to equip you to navigate life in this world as a Christian. The second thing is the work of ministry. Now, taking these as two separate things, this does not mean that there's not ministry for everyone else to do. That's really clear later on in the passage. So we don't lose anything by breaking these into two. But I think this points out something very important about the nature of the ministry of the word. Sometimes in churches, things get twisted around to where the church essentially serves the pastor. The pastor has an agenda. He's driving something. And everybody exists to move that forward. Right? This point here that Paul is making completely undermines that. This idea of the work of the ministry. Ministry is the word for service, right? Pastors, these other roles, the ministry of the word exists for you, to serve you. I am a pastor not to use you to advance my agenda. I am a pastor to serve you, to love you, to lay my life down for your good and for your benefit. That's why I minister the word. It's not to advance anything about myself. If it is, I'm wrong and I should not be a pastor, period right? My job is to give of myself. That's why I study. That's why I work on this. It's for you, or should be. If it's not, there's something very wrong, right? So these, all these ministers of the word, this is the, this gets turned on its head way too much, right? It is a serving role, right? I bring the word to you to serve you, not as a way of aggrandizing myself. That's really, really important. God's ministers are his servants, and the servants of his church. And then the last thing is to build up the body of Christ. And we're going to see a lot more of that later because these people who have the teaching role aren't the only ones who build up the body of Christ. We actually all do this. And then the next verse talks about kind of what this is, how long this is meant to go on, right? Paul says that this happens until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So three things. To all of us attain unity of faith, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, and ultimately mature manhood that looks like the, the fullness of Christ. couple key things to note about this, right? First of all, this is talking about stuff that we are corporately together. You should not read this as something that you do personally. That's not the picture at all. And this is an important distinction because we're going to see on the flip, the flip side what changes. This is one of the big themes is the, the corporate emphasis of the church and what the building up of the church means, right? This is what we all get grown up in together, right? And the other thing we need to see is that while these are all things that we taste to some degree now, right? We do have a certain amount of unity in the faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit. We do have a certain amount of knowledge of Christ, right? Because of the work of the Spirit. Thank God. And we even see, you know, bits of Christ in each other, right? We see the work of the Spirit. I see Christ in you guys as I see the Holy Spirit working. But clearly, we have not attained this, right? And he says, when we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, where is Christ right now? He is enthroned in glory, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. Clearly, that, is, that does not look like us. 
does not look like me. You look at me during the week, that, those are two very different pictures, right? And I'm assuming it's the same thing with you, right? So he's talking about something that is not going to be a reality until Christ comes again and glorifies us, right? Someday we are going to look much like that, but now is not that time. So what Paul is driving home is that we are going to be pursuing these things and we're going to see glimpses of them, but the fullness of it's not going to come till Christ comes back. But what we need until that time comes is this ministry of the word through the church, right? This wasn't just the start of the plan and then we need new things to move further on. No, this is God's agenda for growing his church. It's the word of God ministered to his church through people he's gifted to minister it. This is the thing we need to get us from here to glory. It's the thing he's given his church for that purpose. So the important, couple important things, right? We don't move past this, right? We don't need to find new techniques, new things. There's been all kinds of studies that say preaching does not work anymore in a modern context. We're changed because we have social media and we have video stuff and it's just not that interesting anymore, right? There's all kinds of studies that say this. And God says, no, this is what I work through. This is what I set up to do these things, right? So we need to trust what God says will build his church rather than what, than chasing innovation and new things, right? We have to trust him. He said he will build his church, so we have to trust his means. But another important implication to this, guys, and I think this maybe hits a little closer to home, is that the primary way we engage the word of God is within the church, right? And there's a, there's a, our modern American Christianity is so individualistic, just by nature. We just default that way. It's part of being an American, right? We're just a very individualistic culture, so we just gravitate to this really well. But I just want you to think about just the history of the church. The only access people had to the word of God for the vast majority of the church, the first 1,500 years, was when they gathered together on Sunday morning and heard it taught through these people God had gifted. Then we had this glorious gift, right, of, of getting the Bible in our own languages and, and actually having access to it, right? Well, for a long time, most people still couldn't read. That, like, broad literacy is still fairly new, right? And so we've got to realize God has grown and built his church throughout history, primarily through what we're doing right now, right? That does not mean reading your Bible on your own is bad or shouldn't be done, but it should, a lot of times in the American church, that is seen as the primary thing, right? Church is easy. You just show up. That's like the low bar for Christians. The real work is done is when you get up super early in the morning and you spend your personal private time, right? That is like, that's where the real Christians get made, not here. And that totally turns scripture on its head. That stuff is good. It's not bad. Absolutely. It's such a gift to have the word of God. But the primary way we receive the word of God is together through these people that God has gifted to teach it, All right? This is a huge shift from what you generally hear in the American church, All right? But it's what we see in God's word. It's what we see in God's word. And this was a huge, this was a huge thing in the Reformation, right? Because there's two errors we can fall into. As the Roman Catholic church kind of became the church, there was a problem that's kind of the opposite of the problem we have now, where basically everything was tradition. It was just kind of what the church said was the law, whether it came out of scripture or not. That's wrong. That's what the reformers pushed back on. That's what they were trying to reform the church out of. But the Reformation wasn't the only thing going on, the only response to Rome. There was another response, 
uh, from a group called the Anabaptists. And the reformers pushed back on them just as much as they did on Rome, because they went to the other extreme, right? They said the church had no authority. You don't need anybody who's gifted and teachers. You should go out in the woods with your Bible, and whatever you come up with is true and authoritative, and everybody does their own thing. It was kind of this almost spiritual anarchy. And the reformer says, no, that's, we need to fix this, but that's not the way. Like God has clearly, he's gifted his church with people to teach. And the church is supposed to receive the word together as a body, right? That's pretty clear from scripture. So what the Catholic church said is that the church is the authority, right? What the Anabaptists said is that the church has no authority. What the reformers said, and what was biblical as they went back to scripture, is that the church has ministerial authority, right? The church has the authority to minister the word of God, right? My authority as your pastor stops where the word of God stops. But where the word of God says things, I can speak to you authoritatively and I should speak to you authoritatively and you should listen and you should hear it. That's the way God designed it to work. But the second I get to where scripture stops, I'm done. I have no authority at that point. That is what scripture teaches, right? We are meant to hear, the church does have an authority, but it's an authority that comes from the fact that God has gifted her with people who teach and can minister the word of God to you, right? Having your own Bible by yourself is basically just giving like a a bag of groceries. Here you go. And God gives you more than that. God, through equipping certain people within the church to teach and to study and to do all this, he gives you this gourmet meal, right? That's what I should be trying to give you. Gourmet is probably speaking too highly of what I do, right? But I want to give you something that's prepared and and well done, right? So you just get to come and you get to enjoy it and savor it and all the flavors come together the right way, right? Have you ever been to like a really, really nice restaurant? The kind that you really can't afford to go to very often? I've I've had a couple of those dinners like that and I like to cook and I'm okay at it, right? I, I make edible food, But there's something totally different between what I do and when I go eat from a chef who knows how every flavor works and the right way to cook everything and he can make stuff that I think I hate and I love it all of a sudden because I didn't know you could make broccoli or squash taste like that. Like it's just like, how in the world is that doing? Like that's the idea. God's equipped some of these people to, to understand and to know scripture for your good, right? Does that make sense? Do you guys see the errors on either side and what God has actually called us to? Right? To, to read and to understand scripture together as a church. Right? Even, even myself, right? I would not understand scripture the way I do without 2,000 years of people studying and working through issues and everything like that. Right? Like, I, I would not. I stand on all kinds of stack of shoulders. Right? I, I do. I do. And we should not neglect that. That is a gift of grace. So we don't want to go hyper-individual and we don't want to go back to Rome right? But God's given us this beautiful picture where he equips people to feed us and nourish us with the word of God, not as overlords, but as servants, right? So why does he do this, right? Why do we need this? Why isn't it just enough for us to just go do our own thing with our Bibles and just have fun with that? Why is that not enough? Why does God do it this way? Well, that's what he gets into. In verse 14, we get, so that we get the reason, He's not really burying the lead here, right? He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All right, so the word children here is little kids. This is like toddlers, right? And so the contrast here was 
He talked about us in the last verse as one body, like a corporate whole. Here he talks about us, he uses the plural, toddlers, right? So he's backed us out into the individual, right? He's saying what he's trying to guard us against is from individual, individually doing our own thing. And when we do that, we become vulnerable. You ever heard the phrase divide and conquer? That's what Paul's getting at. That's what he's trying to protect us from. When we think that we are sufficient in and of ourselves and we don't need the church and the ministry of the church, when you have the smartest guy in the room syndrome, right? Where I know better than everybody else. I don't need the, the refining of my brothers and sisters in Christ and the teaching of people that God has gifted. We make ourselves incredibly vulnerable, right? The, the picture here is, first of all, of toddlers, right? I have toddlers. I know what they're like. They are super stubborn. They can hear me right now. I love you guys. This is not a knock. This is everybody, right? They're incredibly stubborn and obstinate, right? They, and you can also convince them of anything, right? Like I can tell them the moon is blue and, you know, tomorrow they'll, they'll still believe it, right? Like they're just, they're very naive and gullible too. That's the picture that, that Paul is using. He's saying, this is what we are. This is our nature, right? It's, it's common to mock people as, as like sheeple, right? When, they, when we think they're gullible and they'll just go along with whatever they hear. What does the Bible call us? Sheep, right? So we might only be careful before we throw that rock. God says that's what you are. And he says it on purpose, right? Sheep do not survive in the wild on their own. They are purely a domestic animal. They cannot function on their own. They need help and care of a shepherd, all right, so he uses the picture of toddlers, and then he uses this picture of a boat, a boat out in the ocean, rudderless, that just moves wherever the waves and the wind take it. All right, so this wind blows it this way, it moves this way. Wind blows it this way, it moves this way. The waves go this way, it just goes with whatever it happens to hear. But it says that this comes, um, different docs, so different teaching comes by human cunning and then by craftiness and deceitful schemes, which based on how that phrase gets used in scripture. I think that's referring to spiritual forces and Satan. Deceitful schemer is kind of one of the, the titles that he gets given quite a bit, right? And so these different winds of doctrine, different distortions of the gospel, false things that we believe, they come from the world all the time. We've talked about this, right? You get preached to 24-7, some kind of good news, and it's not the good news. You get that here for an hour, right? All the rest of the time you are getting told to put your hope in something, that you just need this, you just have this, you will be okay, right? You are constantly being preached to by various winds of doctrine. That's what this means, right? And it comes from the world around us, right? It comes from the media we entertain, it comes from the news, it comes from any, anything. Anything we intake is preaching us some kind of message, some kind of place to put our hope. And certainly Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness are, are, play a role in that as well, right? There's, if there's one thing Satan wants, it's he wants us to disbelieve God and the gospel. He, is, he doesn't care if you're comfortable and happy or anything like that. He wants you to disbelieve God and the gospel, right? But this is particularly dangerous. Those things are all outside, right? The world's preaching to us. Satan preaches to us. But why, what makes this particularly dangerous is our flesh, because we want those things. We want those things to get preached to us. 
Paul writing to Timothy as he pastors the church says this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears that, and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Right? This is, so just so we're clear, this is not people out there. This is us. We all do this. We want things to be a certain way. We want God to have promised us certain things that he has not promised us. We want the gospel to be what it is, but then add this into it. Or we want the hope of the gospel, but we want it now instead of later, right? There's so many little ways that we want it to be different than it is, right? Based on the ways that we're hurting in the moment, based on the comfort that we would want, based on what we think would make life better, right? Our passions, what we feel. And so our tendency is always going to be looking to have someone who will bend the word of God and the gospel to fit what we want, right? We go out looking for people who will tell us that God says what we want him to say. We, do, we are so prone to this, guys. Do not think this is a problem for other people. We all do this. And it's so, so dangerous. I don't know how many times I've sat down with people for counseling and they have not wanted any help. They just wanted me to affirm them. They just want me to tell them like, yes, you're right. Go out and keep doing it rather than actually helping them. It happens all the time. We want God to say what we want him to say rather than what he does say. And so faithful preaching of the gospel has to give us the real thing consistently. It has to not yield to give us what we want to hear. It has to give us what God knows we need rather than what we want. And that'll do a couple of things. Um, I, might have, I might have used this before, so forgive me if you've heard it, but I worked, when I was in Iraq, I worked with some people who um, worked with counterfeiting right, and identifying counterfeit money that was kind of circulating through the country and stuff. And I was talking to some of these people, and they said, the way you learn to identify counterfeits is you don't learn all the counterfeits because you can't. There's, there's thousands of them. They all have their own unique characteristics. There's new ones all the time. You just can't keep up with it. The way you learn to detect counterfeits is to know the real thing really, really well. Because then you may not know what's wrong with the wrong one, but you know it's wrong. Like there's just something that gives it away, right? And so as we sit under these people that God's gifted, who understand the word rightly, who proclaim faithfully the gospel to us, we get to know a deeper and deeper knowledge of the real thing. So that when we do hear these false gospels out in the world all the time, even ones that purport to be the Christian gospel, because there's plenty of those that have distortions in them, right? We start to get that little, that feeling, right? Of like, sounds good, but there's something off, right? So it helps us to start to, uh, to recognize those those counterfeits, right? This is really one of the most essential roles that, that pastors and teachers have in the church and that we as a church have. That's to guard and protect the true gospel and to not let it become corrupted. One of my favorite verses I go back to when I think about my role as a pastor is 2 Timothy 1.14, where, where Paul tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
Like this is what we have to do relentlessly as a church. We have to not give in to the winds of the world and the culture to change, to preach what matches what's going on. We don't preach the newspaper, we preach scripture, right? And we have to faithfully resist the urge to say that, oh, well, these things are the actually important things, right? We should be doing this, we should be doing this, we should be doing this, because this is what matters right now. That's gonna be screamed at us all the time. This isn't relevant anymore. This isn't the most important thing. Our job as a church is to plant the flag and not be moved on this stuff, right? And to faithfully proclaim the gospel no matter how much others out there and even how much we ourselves want things to be different, right? And this is part of the reason that we engage with the word primarily in the church, right? Because we know that we are prone to this. We know that we want it to shape and conform to what we want. And so being in the church it helps with those blind spots, right? If I'm just off by myself, man, I can, the things I could do with scripture if I wanted to, the things I could kind of run down a track and take stuff out of context and convince you of are crazy. Scripture has been used for all sorts of horrible purposes throughout history. And if we go off and do this by ourselves without the help of teachers that God has gifted and the whole body of Christ that, help, that sees things differently and helps us catch things we miss, we will be led astray. Not, not we might. It's not a matter of if, it's, it's when. Because that's not God's design. We are not designed to be wandering toddlers out in the wild or sheep outside of the safety and security of the flock and the shepherd. All right, so that's kind of the, the negative side, right? We need the church to operate this way to protect us from certain bad things, but it's not just a protective thing. There's also, we need this for something positive and productive that we do. So what is that? So in 15, we get the contrast, we get the shift. What are we doing instead? If we're not getting blown around by every wind of doctrine and, and chasing error, because um, one of the other things is, oh, I forgot to mention this. When it says, um, that when it talks about deceitful schemes, really what that means is by any means necessary, right? It, what it means is like you do anything as long as you can get them to believe it. And this is big because it's a contrast that we're going to see right now. Because what we do instead, we see in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the shift goes from being convinced of error by any means necessary, right? Just get people to believe, do whatever you have to, manipulate them, lie to them, whatever it takes, right? And the contrast is that is truth in love, right? It's not just what we're saying. It's words here, right? We were just being led astray by error, right? Now the contrast is truth, but not just truth by any means necessary, Truth in love, right? And this is very important. We say different things in different ways, all right? This is, this is the fundamental difference. We are not here to, to bludgeon people with truth. We're not here to manipulate them into truth. We are not in ends justifies the means. That's not how God builds his church, Right? Rather, God actually focuses us on the means, right? That's actually what he points our focus to, the way that we do things rather than what we produce. So let me walk you guys through this, just 
the technicalities of the verse real quick and we'll, we'll back out a little bit more. So the goal ultimately, what maturity looks like is to grow up into Christ in every way. But we don't just, the goal isn't just to grow up into Christ. He's not just the end point. He's also the source of this. It says from him, the whole body makes the body grow, right? Just like your body. How does your body grow? Your body grows itself, right? There's all these processes and all these different parts that work together to grow it. And then he has this little aside where he talks about how it's joint, joined and held together with every joint with which it's equipped. Right? So he's talking about how the body is, is prepared and equipped to build itself up. And we've seen this earlier in the passage, right? We saw one thing is teachers who minister the word of God. The other thing is all these gifts of grace from the spirit that he gives to the body in diverse ways. These are things that the body has been equipped with in order to be able to function in this way that Christ has designed. It's all from him, but he works through the means of the body itself growing itself. And the other thing is that the parts have to work properly, properly, right? If they don't work properly, they don't function to grow itself up. If you have something that is broken, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So working properly for us means that we're trusting Christ and, and loving our neighbor. We're pursuing the right things. We're trying to be the faithful version of ourselves rather than chasing jealously after what everybody else has been equipped to do, right? Stuff we talked about last week. And all this stuff exists so that the church builds itself up in love, right? So key things, guys. Jesus is both the source and the goal, right? He is the one who makes the body grow, and the goal is to grow up into him, right? So two big things, right? Our discipline is not the source of growth, right? Discipline is not a bad thing. Discipline is a very good thing. It's very helpful for life. Life will go better for you if you're disciplined than if you're not. But you cannot discipline yourself into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus does that through the Holy Spirit working in his church, right? And this is a huge difference between what scripture teaches us about how we grow versus a lot of the Christian living discipleship stuff that's out there, right? Most of that is tactics, techniques, things, and the more disciplined you are doing the stuff, then you're going to grow and level up your personal holiness, right? That's not the picture scripture says, has. Scripture says the thing that's going to grow you is Jesus. How does he do that? He works through the means of his church. His spirit equips the church and the church builds itself up in love. So you want to grow to be more like Christ? Be in the church, be in the church, be integrated in the church and everything that that means. Does that make sense? Right? And also, the goal is not numbers. It's not certain metrics. It's not the, ch the church growth movement statistics that we're hitting, right? Like, that is not what our end goal is. And we do anything we can to hit certain benchmarks. That's not it. The goal, growing up into the fullness of Christ, the goal is love. The goal is love. That's what maturity looks like for us. Jesus builds his church through the means of the body building up. And then as it functions properly, it builds itself up in love. Love is not something that you can measure as a tangible outcome, right? We love more. Love gets shown in the way that you do things, right? It gets shown up in the manner. So we are not that, that means justifies the end. We're the opposite, right? We focus on what has God called us to do. We trust Christ and we love each other. We are gentle, meek, humble, all those things we read about at the beginning of the chapter that promote the unity of the body. We do those things. The numbers, Jesus decides that. He brings the increase. We plant, we water, 
Almost everything, if you look at the New Testament, almost everything we're called to do is about the way that we do things, the way that we relate to people, the way that we engage with people. It's almost nothing about what we produce in the sense that we would talk about things, like that we can measure. So this is, this is, what Christ, this is Christ's design for the church. This is what maturity looks like. Church growth is not the goal. Love is the goal. That is what we are pursuing. That's what we are spending us for. Jesus decides where the growth comes from. We focus on doing things the way that he has called us to do them. We might be a big church. We might be a little church. I don't care. What I care about is that we rest continuously in the finished work of Jesus. And out of that rest and freedom, we love and care for each other. Period. We do that. We can be two people or how, whatever. I, don't, I really don't care. What I care about is us being faithful to do what God has called the church to do. Not becoming something else so we have different numbers. Right. Secondly, discipleship, right? Discipleship is not primarily about you as an individual. It's not about you becoming something, getting new, hitting new levels of spirituality. It is about the church becoming what God has designed the church to be. This is like, in this passage, it's fascinating because every time Paul talks about something good, growing up into the image of Christ, I mean, he uses a singular picture or pronouns or something. One body, one people. It's all this one thing. Whenever he talks about the negative, us being led astray, he talks in plural. He talks about us as individuals, right? Discipleship is a corporate thing, not an individual thing, biblically. This is such a huge shift that when you think, maturity is not something you can reach as an individual by yourself any more than a hand can reach its full potential separated from its body. To grow, each part needs the body and the body needs each part. So the fundamental shift here is that discipleship is outwardly focused, right? If discipleship is this individualistic thing and you're constantly trying to climb the ladder to hit new levels of spirituality and intimacy with God, that is complete and totally spiritually narcissistic, you have to be consumed with yourself. Everything is about you. And any love you have of neighbor is not actually love. It's manipulation and using the people around you for you to climb your spiritual ladder. And that is not what God has saved us for. He's done the opposite, right? He, this is why the gospel works the way that it does. By providing everything we need in Christ. There is no ladder to climb. Jesus came down the ladder and carried you up it. It's done. You have his total righteousness. You cannot add to it. And he died for all your sin. There's nothing more to make up for. And the reason he does that is because that frees you from having to be a spiritual narcissist, right? You don't have to obsess over yourself. You are okay. You are safe because Christ has made you safe. And why does he make you safe like that? One, that's the only way you'll ever be safe. But two, that also frees you to care about other people. Jesus said the law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We can't do either of those things. Jesus did them for us. And while we need to do those things, we can't actually do them. If I have to love the Lord my God to be right with him, every act of love towards him is going to be simply about myself. If I have to love my neighbor perfectly to be right with God, everything I do for you is about me. It has nothing to do with your good or your benefit. 
But because the gospel frees us from the weight of that, we are actually liberated to genuinely love people for the first time. I can do something kind for you, for you, because I don't actually need anything. Christ has provided all I need because he wants me to be able to love you, right? We can't love until we know that we have all that we actually need before God in Jesus. So discipleship is not about this perfect, private, like personal, private, holiness journey up a ladder. It's about us looking outward, loving and caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, pointing each other to our hope in Christ. It is all others-oriented and God-oriented. We are not meant to live curved in on ourselves. The Reformers talked about this is what sin did. Well, the incurvitus in se in Latin, to be curved in on yourself. That was what they described sin as doing. What God has done in the gospel is he has uncurved us. We don't have to stare at ourselves anymore. He's liberated us from that because of the riches that we have in Jesus. So when you think about following, discipleship is following Christ. What did Christ do for himself? Nothing. He laid aside his glory to come live in this wretched world in a wretched, broken body and die a miserable, horrible death for himself? No. He had no obligation to do that. He did it because he loved you. He laid his life down for you. Discipleship of Christ is by its very nature has to be others oriented. It has to be outward facing. If your idea of following Christ has you completely absorbed with yourself, you are not following Christ. It's a lie, it's a deception. It's one of those winds of doctrine that you've been caught up in. So guys, I hope you see just the beauty in this design of how Jesus builds his church. All right, it's, it's better than anything we could come up with, right? He gives us his word. He reveals actual objective truth to us and then he gives us people, right, who can understand it and, and give it to us in beautiful ways. Help us understand it. Help us not miss it, right? But then through that, and through his Holy Spirit, through the word and the Spirit, he gives us all different kinds of grace that we need. There's not a person in this room that I don't need to be more like Jesus, to make it through this life to where God wants me. I need every single one of you and what the Holy Spirit is doing through you. The same thing with me, right? So, Christianity has so confused, so many times maturity is, compu- is confused with independence and strength. And that is such a lie. What Christian maturity is, is love and dependence. It's not being independent and being able to stand on your own. It's recognizing that you need your brothers and sisters in Christ and then giving yourself for them. That is true Christian maturity. But so often we miss that. Guys, so what do we need to actually pursue church in this way, right? To, to have it be outward focused instead of inward focused. To, to know that we need the, the help of the church to catch our blind spots, to build us up. That we need the grace that God shows to each other through the spirit. What, what do we need? Well, we need to constantly be, be pointed outside of ourselves. We need to be reminded of the sufficiency of Christ for us so that we can look away from ourselves. Right? That's the only thing that allows us to do that. And that's part of the reason we're given the Lord's Supper and communion, right? This is not, so many times communion gets turned into this incredibly self-absorbed thing, 
right? Have you been in churches where communion is this, okay, we're going to play five minutes of music and you need to think about every possible sin you had and just go into this uber introspective mode, right? A lot of times that's what communion becomes. Communion is not meant to turn you in on yourself. It's meant to turn you out towards Christ, right? None of you get to take this meal because you were good enough this week or because you repented enough this week. I guarantee you, you are not aware of all your sin and you have not confessed at all. Right? You get to take this meal because you are in Christ, because he is sufficient for you. That's what this does. That's what the bread and the wine does. It reminds us that the broken body of Jesus and the blood that he shed is perfectly sufficient for all we need before the Father. We have communion with him now. And not only communion with him, but outward facing communion with each other, those of us who are in Christ together. So we get to do that now, right? This is one of the things God has given to point us outward. As we sing, you guys can go to the back. The elements are stacked, two cups back there. Come back together, sit down. This meal is for the family of God. It's important to remember, right? This meal does nothing for you if you are not in Christ. This is a meal for the family. If you've got questions about, please feel free to come and talk to me. But if you are in Christ, you're part of his church, this meal is for you. So let's go receive the elements as we sing and worship. I'll come back and lead us through um, this gift that the Lord's given us.